Welcome to Eric Hurst's Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing podcast. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Training for Climbing. Hello, and welcome to the Training for Climbing podcast. I'm Eric Hurst, and in this episode, I'm going to share with you four highly effective fingerboard training protocols as well as give you some programming tips on how to schedule your on and off season finger training to give you the best results on the rock. This episode on effective strength training using a fingerboard follows up on the last episode in which I detailed five reasons why strong fingers matter. Now, if you haven't listened to that last episode, I encourage you to go back and do so first because it really lays the groundwork for what we're going to cover here on why developing a higher level of maximum finger strength is central to taking your climbing to the next level. But let me just give you a quick recap of those five reasons why strong fingers matter. Number one is that stronger fingers can grip smaller holds. Now, this is a pretty obvious conclusion, but it's something that's overlooked by climbers who tend to favor training endurance all of the time. The ironic thing, however, is that if you can't pull through a single hard move on a route, then there is nothing to endure. So you need to train in a way to be able to grab smaller crimps, smaller pockets, uh, and make what are now unusable holds usable for you on hard boulder problems and hard routes. The second reason why stronger fingers matter is that they can endure longer while climbing on submaximal holds. In Europe, they call this resistance climbing. In America, we just talk about having endurance on those steep overhanging routes. And sure, you do need to do specific endurance training to develop higher aerobic capacity and uh, anaerobic endurance, lactic tolerance, etc. But really, your maximum strength is the foundation. It's a defining factor in terms of the upper limit to which you can develop power endurance and strength endurance through your training. So again, stronger fingers, very important in taking your endurance to the next level. The third reason why stronger fingers matter is that you can rest and recover on smaller holds. You see this with pro climbers. They can hang out and rest in places where a normal person like me or perhaps you could not. And uh, by having an incredibly high level of maximum strength, a high maximum voluntary contraction of their forearm flexors, they can hang out uh, and rest on smaller holds using a smaller percentage of their maximum strength and therefore be able to shake out and recover on holds that would pump you or I out. The fourth reason why stronger fingers matter is that they give you more stamina in terms of how many submaximal routes you can climb in a day, pitches in a day, or even how much, uh, how hard you can climb on consecutive days by being a stronger climber and, of course, improving your endurance capabilities and especially your aerobic capacity. You'll be able to have more stamina during long days at the crags, long weekends at the crags, or maybe even a couple of days that you spend up on a big wall. And the fifth reason why stronger fingers matter is that strong fingers make climbing more fun. By being able to power through a 
really hard move, or send a hardest ever boulder problem, or red point a long-term project. That is one of the most gratifying things about climbing, and one of the main reasons we keep coming back to it season after season after season. It really uh, is a, a process that enriches our life. Okay then, so now let's segue into studying some training protocols. Uh, in this podcast, we're going to f- uh, focus on fingerboard training, how to hang on a fingerboard uh, and train in a way that is going to improve your capability to grab those small edges and pockets. And what we're really talking about here uh, is relative peak finger force. Okay, let's break that down. Relative peak finger force. It's not so much your maximum finger strength, but what your finger strength is relative to your body weight. So think of it about uh, think of it as a fraction, where the numerator is your finger strength, your absolute finger strength. Uh, what is your maximum voluntary contraction? How much force you can put into a rock hold with your fingertips? That's the numerator, and the denominator, of course is your body mass. So to improve your relative peak finger force, you can go about it two ways. One is to increase the numerator, that is get stronger, or to decrease the denominator, which is to lower your body mass. Either way will elevate your relative peak finger force. Now, for a beginner, uh, some intermediate climbers certainly, you know, people that are out of shape climbers or returning to climbing after a a period away from the sport, uh, they may be able to increase their strength to weight ratio, that uh, relative peak finger force, most quickly by improving body composition, by reducing excessive body fat, and even reducing unwanted muscle mass. Say you went off on a tangent and did some CrossFit or bodybuilding training and you developed some big pecs or big quads, uh, you know, um, reducing that muscle mass that's not really helping you in climbing. Or if you're overweight, if you can pinch an inch or more around your waistline, that excessive body fat, you can do that more quickly than you can improve your absolute finger strength. So that's where a beginner or out-of-shape climber should begin. Now, I think you know most climbers I work with that are serious about training already have their body composition in a good place. And I'm against uh, excessive dieting and you know that anorexic climber look is so 1980s or 1990s. And uh, you know when you starve yourself and don't eat properly, you actually do more harm than good. You uh, you know, suppress muscle protein synthesis, you can't recover from workouts as quickly, you're more likely to fall into an overtraining syndrome and get sick and uh, injured, and you don't want to go there. So quality nutrition, that's a great topic for another podcast. So again, um, yes, within reason, you want to lower your body mass, make that denominator as small as reasonably possible. But you know, for uh, the typical hard training climber who's in a good place body uh, mass wise, you need to focus on that numerator, how to develop stronger fingers. So that's where we're going with this podcast here. Um, and of course, the, the usual caveat is that, you know, you cannot overlook 
improving climbing technique and your mental game because that speaks to your economy of movement on the rock, how effectively you're able to use the strength that you have and how long you can make your limited energy supplies last on a hard route. And if you're overgripping or moving roughly, uh, poor footwork, not resting properly, you're scared and, you know, um, uh, just out of whack on a route, then you're burning through your energy much faster. You know, you have those energy leaks and you're just, the gas is draining out of the tank. And uh, so, yes, you always have to be training and mindful of uh, ways that you can improve your movement skills and your mental skills. But again, the focus of this podcast is finger strength. So let's move on to that. A fingerboard is a training tool that really every serious climber should own. Of course, if you belong to a good climbing gym with a great training area and it's nearby, then you probably don't need to purchase a hangboard. Uh, but if the nearest climbing gym is a 30-minute or hour drive away, uh, you know, installing a hangboard at your house is the next best thing to having a home training wall. And even if you have a home training wall, there's still good reason to have a hangboard. Now, you don't need anything fancy. In fact, if you're on a budget, you can, you know, use uh, a couple strips of wood, a couple different depth edges. You can drill some pockets into a board. I mean, that's what my generation did back in the early 1980s. The hangboard hadn't been invented yet, at least not the commercial boards as we know them today. Uh, we would take, uh, you know, two by eights and drill holes and cut edges and um, hang that at our house as a method of training grip strength. Um, that's, again, in the pre-climbing gym era. And you, But you could still do the same thing. You can create your own edges and pockets to hang from. Though, for $100 or $200, there's a bunch of great hangboards out there that you could purchase as well that uh, make training fun and uh, um, allow you to really focus in on training uh, various grip positions. Now, when you have a hangboard and when you train on it, uh, just anything you do on there uh, is not necessarily a maximum strength exercise. You know, there's very specific ways you need to train if you really want to elevate your peak finger force, your grip strength. So the first thing I want to do is give you a sense of the three general hangboard training modalities, only one of which trains maximum grip strength, okay? Um, number one is what we're going to be talking about in this podcast is doing uh, maximal hangs. They're brief, they're high-intensity they only last 5 or 10 or 12 seconds, and then you're done. And then you take a long rest. Uh, that is the method by which you recruit uh, fast-twitch muscle fibers, call the most motor units into play, um, but you can only do so for a brief time at a very high intensity. It's the anaerobic alactic energy system that's primarily at work in doing these short maximal hangs. So that's what we're going to be focusing on here today. But there are two other ways that people commonly train on a fingerboard. One is to do what are called repeaters, where you're doing a series of brief hangs in a row with just a short rests, a few seconds between each hang. And that is a, a great protocol for developing strength endurance. Uh, and you will get pumped doing a repeater training protocol, which is evidence of it tapping into the anaerobic lactic energy system. And the third method of 
uh, or general type of fingerboard training is that which trains more aerobic endurance. And the way you would do this on a, on a fingerboard is you need to reduce the intensity of your training uh, in a way, usually by putting your feet on um, some footholds or on a uh, chair or some other object to reduce the weight on your fingers so that you can move around the hangboard, almost like it's a climb itself, moving from one grip to another and staying on the fingerboard in this way for several minutes. And the fact that you can continue for several minutes is evidence that you are primarily training the aerobic energy system, which, you know, I think is best to be trained on a climbing wall. But if you don't have access to a climbing wall, you can do uh, that type of fingerboard training where you have your feet on the wall or on some other object, reducing the weight on your fingers to just a small fraction of your body weight and then moving your hands around the board. And that's a pretty good training protocol for training the aerobic energy system using a hangboard. Anyway, I guess the bottom line is that you need to know what you're training. You need to know what you're doing if you're using a hangboard. If you just hang it up and do some hangs kind of haphazardly of different uh, duration, different intensity, then you're not focusing your training in a way that's going to really provide uh, significant results. So uh, the focus here in this podcast is maximum grip strength training protocols. So let's get to it. Okay then, so the first maximum grip strength training protocol is what I call the minimum edge training strategy. And it's based on research by Eva Lopez Rivera, a Spanish climber and researcher who's really led the way on documenting um, some effective ways to train on a hangboard. Uh, This is a low volume protocol, and it's what I recommend kind of as the entry-level fingerboard training program. That's not to be confused with a beginner's climbing program. Uh, You know, beginners need to climb and not train on a fingerboard. But in terms of uh, an icebreaker for a climber uh, that's experienced, that wants to get stronger grip strength, um, this uh, protocol, the minimum edge protocol, is probably the way to go uh, your first few weeks or month using a hangboard. You do this for a few cycles and you're going to get some noticeable gains in finger strength and that'll prepare you into delving into the other fingerboard training strategies that I'm going to describe next. To do the minimum edge protocol, you do need a fingerboard that has uh, different size edges uh, because you're going to progress from large holds to smaller holds over the course of several workouts or several weeks of training. You're going to increase the intensity, not by adding weight to your body, but by using smaller holds, whether that would mean you know smaller crimp edges or uh, smaller pockets or fewer fingers in pockets. You can do it a number of ways. But the key to this training strategy is to uh, identify features that you can hang on for just about 15 seconds. For instance, what size uh, edge? Is it a full pad? Is it a half pad edge that you can hang on? And at 15 seconds, you fatigue and kind of fall off. Okay, Um, that's what you want to identify. What holds on the board take you to your limit in about 15 seconds? Now, the actual training hangs, as uh, Eva 
researched and, and put this protocol together should be 12 seconds in length. So you're going to terminate the hangs uh, with three seconds left in the tank. So you're not going to complete failure. Uh, and this is by design. The, you know, this is the way training protocols work. You know, not every workout should end at failure. In fact, if you're doing that regularly, then you're not training effectively. And, you know, that gets into exercise physiology and some topics I don't want to dig into here, but um, it is information that I've uh, touched on in the third edition of my Training for Climbing book. So if you want to learn more about the science of effective training, do check out my book, Training for Climbing. Okay, so in any case, uh, to do the minimum edge protocol, you identify what holds on the board you can hang on to for only about 15 seconds before failure. And then you're going to do 12 second hangs. That's the training stimulus. Uh, you will hang for 12 seconds. You'll let go. You will rest for exactly three minutes. And then you will do another 12 second hang. Then rest for another three minutes. And you will do this for a total of five hangs. So doing a five hang set will take you about uh, 15 minutes or so. So obviously most of that 15 minutes, you're doing nothing, or at least you're not hanging on the hangboard. You're only doing five 12 second hangs. So during those three minute rest breaks, you can do other exercises. You could do some core training. Uh, you could do some antagonist training. You could do some flexibility or mobility work. Um, but you don't want to be doing anything finger intensive. Those three minute rests, your finger flexor muscles should be recovering so that you can put out a maximum effort on your next 12 second hang. So I would recommend doing four different grips or four different sets. Uh, these 15 minute sets that would make uh, an hour of training. Uh, again, most of the time is resting, not hanging on the fingerboard, but you're following the protocol that's been proven to work. And so you need to make the hangs brief and maximal and then uh, take the uh, prescribed rest periods between the hangs. In terms of grip training, you might want to do a set on the uh, half crimp, a set with what we call an open crimp grip, where your two middle, you know, your longer fingers are kind of crimping and your index and pinky finger are open-handed. Um, and then you might want to do a couple sets on uh, two finger pockets, like the uh, inside pair for a set and then the middle pair of fingers for a set. And so four sets of uh, five hangs would be a total of 20 hangs. Doesn't sound like a hard workout, but if you're doing it right, it's very effective. And that's what matters. But after a period of minimum edge training, you're eventually going to get so strong that the holds you would need to use to uh, limit yourself to a 12 or 15 second hang will get so small and so painful that it won't be fun training anymore. And if it's not fun, then it's not going to happen and it's certainly not going to be effective. So uh, enter the next training protocol, which is uh, maximum weight 10-second hangs. And in doing this, you're going to use larger, more comfortable holds, but you're going to add weight to your body to create sufficiently high intensity for maximum strength adaptations to occur. In my opinion, the ideal size edge for weighted fingerboard hangs is somewhere between 14 millimeters and 20 millimeters, uh, or in English units, 
you know, roughly five eighths of an inch to seven eighths of an inch, or just a little less than a full finger pad depth. This moderate size will lessen skin pain and reduce strain on that distal finger joint. Uh, and it's been proven effective to develop maximum grip strength as long as you're using enough added weight to make uh, the hangs high intensity and, uh, in fact, near maximal. So uh, this protocol and the next one both involve adding weight to your body. And, you know, the best way to do that, um, you can use a weight belt. I have a, uh, a couple of 10-pound weight belts that I can adjust to create uh, the resistance that I need for uh, certain grips. Uh, but again, at some point, you're going to get so strong that a few 10-pound weight belts won't be enough. And so long-term, uh, if you're at a gym, wearing a harness and hanging uh, free weights or kettlebells from your harness is a good way to go. Or what I do is um, if you buy from Rogue Fitness, uh, if you Google Rogue Loading Pin, they make a nice tube that you can drop free weight plates onto. And you know, so I'll literally, when I'm training with weight, drop on like 225-pound plates and then some 10 pound and some five pound plates and I can create exactly right down to the pound the resistance I need for a given uh, workout for a given grip position or depth of hold that I'm training so you know to do this right you need to have some flexibility in the weight so that it can be progressive you know having a method that you can add higher and higher amounts of weight over uh, several workouts or several weeks or several years of training ultimately. Okay, so here's how you do it. Um, this time, you're going to identify uh, what weight you need to limit your hang to 13 seconds. So let's say you're using a 20 millimeter edge. You need to uh, play around and figure out what weight you need to uh, hang from your harness so that you are limited uh, to hanging 13 seconds on that 20 millimeter edge. But as in doing the minimum edge protocol that I just presented, uh, we're going to end the hangs, our training hangs, with three seconds in the tank. So in this case, we're going to be doing 10 second training hangs. So uh, having identified the hold and the weight you need, you will hang on the board 10 seconds and then you will rest three minutes. And then you'll hang 10 seconds again and rest three minutes. And you're going to continue that way for a total of five hangs. So again, this protocol will take about 15 minutes to go through a series of five hangs. Uh, and then you will take a five-minute rest and do another set. And ultimately, you can do up to, say, four sets of these 10-second uh, hangs, each set being five hangs with three minutes rest in between. So again, that's about a one hour fingerboard workout. Uh, and during the rest periods, again, you would be doing some type of other training uh, to use up that time. Um, or, you know, maybe you do some work, um, uh, answer emails, or if you're a teacher, correct some papers or whatnot, uh, you know, make that time, uh, that rest time effective. Uh, in terms of what grips to train, again, I would uh, focus first and foremost on uh, the crimp grip. Do your first set with the half crimp grip position in which the, 
second joint of your fingers is bent at about 90 degrees, but you're not locking your thumb over top. You don't ever want to do that when you're fingerboard training. Um, so train a set at that half crimp, then a, a set with the open crimp. That's where your two long fingers are crimping, but your two shorter fingers are open uh, grip position. And then maybe pick out, um, again, two different size pockets. Uh, and again, you're going to have to experiment to find out what is the appropriate weight for your 10 second hangs. Of course, it helps a lot if you keep detailed records of uh, each workout, how much weight you used for each grip position. And uh, this will allow you to replicate the workout. And it will also give you a sense of the progress that you're making. As you can see that you're getting stronger and you're increasing your weight by a few pounds a week, maybe five pounds a week during your first training cycle. Uh, one thing you notice when you begin a new training program, and certainly uh, something as specific as finger training, is uh, the first few weeks, the first month or two, you're going to make significant progress. You're going to get a lot stronger. And then over time, uh, the adaptations are kind of playing out uh, given the current program and you need to break uh, and and change and modify the program or move on to training um, endurance for a block. Uh, and that speaks to the importance of a good, smart exercise programming, which I'll touch on at the end of this podcast. But let's stay focused here on the actual training protocols. So next up, the third uh, of the four fingerboard training strength protocols is one that I developed a number of years ago. It's a maximum weight protocol that I call 7-53. And here's what it is. This is a more advanced uh, maximum weight protocol. Uh, not too different from what we just went over in the 10-second hang protocol, but uh, this time you're going to actually do a series of three hangs that are only seven seconds uh, in duration, but with only 53 seconds of rest between each of the three hangs. Now, you may be wondering, is 53 seconds of rest between hangs enough to fully recover? And the answer is kind of yes and no. And let me expand on that for just a minute. Complete recovery between maximum strength exercises or sets takes about three to five minutes. There's a tremendous body of research showing that a three to five minute rest is uh, important between maximum strength training exercises. But when you dig a little deeper, recovery between maximum lifts occurs in two phases. And the first phase plays out in about 50 seconds. And that first phase of recovery is uh, the mitochondria uh, resynthesizing ATP to restore the creatine phosphate intercellular stores that power brief maximum intensity exercise. The second phase of recovery is the slow phase, which plays out over the course of the next two or three minutes, um, but is less crucial for recovery of maximum strength. So what we're doing with this 7-53 protocol is we're uh, taking enough rest, the, the 53 seconds, for the mitochondria to do their work and replenish creatine phosphate stores to about 70% of the maximum capacity. And then you're doing your next hang, 
which is only seven seconds long and is going to burn through ATP and creatine phosphate very quickly in a seven-second maximum hang. And then you're going to rest again for 53 seconds, and you're going to get that spike of fast recovery uh, over the course of the 53 seconds, and the creatine phosphate stores are renewed in the muscle uh, largely. Now, after three of those, uh, the muscles are going to start to fall behind, and the mitochondria won't be able to uh, replenish ATP and creatine phosphate quick enough. And so that's why we limit uh, each set to three seven-second hangs. And uh, after those three seven-second hangs, you then take a full five-minute rest. As with the uh, previous training protocols, uh, each of these seven-second hangs uh, should be slightly less than maximal. So you want to select weights that would allow you to hang for 10 seconds, but you're going to end each hang with three seconds in a tank. So um, you're doing these uh, three seven-second hangs, and perhaps by the third hang of the set, it becomes uh, pretty much a maximal hang in terms of there is nothing left in the tank on that uh, third hang of the set, and that's fine. However, if you can't complete the third hang, if you can't stay on the edge for seven seconds, well, then the weight is too heavy uh, for the entire set. You want to be using a uh, fixed weight for all three hangs of the set. Uh, so again, it's going to take some experimentation to get uh, the weight selection right for the hold size you use. I personally use a 14 millimeter edge when I'm doing my 753 maximum weight protocol. And I've built over the course of a few years from needing to hang uh, about 50 pounds from my harness to currently about 90 pounds from my harness, which is more than half of my body weight. So there's quite a sense of progression there season to season. Um, that didn't happen overnight, uh, and it didn't happen in a single training cycle, but you will see some progress from training cycle to training cycle. And again, this is not something you train year-round, and we'll talk more about how to train that and integrate it with your climbing at the end of this podcast. A final comment before we move on to the fourth protocol. At some point, you may get so strong, I hope, that you just won't be able to add any more weight uh, to your harness. It'll get, it'll become impractical to add 150 pounds, let's say, or even 100 pounds starts to get kind of crazy for me. So that's when you need to start uh, experimenting with doing one arm hangs. Making the transition take some time and you'll want to use a larger size hold, maybe 20 or even 25 millimeters in depth, a full finger pad, to begin doing one-handed or one-arm training with the 7-53 second protocol. Uh, and once you can do three of those in a row in a set, then you start adding weight again. But this time it's a little easier. You can just hold weight in your free hand. Uh, my older son Cameron uh, is training this way now, and he'll hold a 5 or 10 or 20-pound dumbbell in his free hand while holding uh, the one-arm, one-hand crimp hold or pocket hold for the seven seconds. It's important, of course, to do this with really good technique. 
you're going to want to maintain significant bend in your arm, about 30 degrees of bend, and keep your scapula engaged. If those muscles aren't strong enough to maintain uh, good form, then you should continue with the two-handed training until your scapular stabilizers and uh, rotator cuff and your pulling muscles are strong enough to train one-armed with proper technique. Now, the fourth training protocol are short-duration repeaters. And this is more of a strength endurance protocol, but it sure does uh, build maximum strength. I just don't think it's the best maximum strength protocol. Because what you'll notice when you're doing short-duration repeaters is that you get pumped. And so that's evidence that um, not only are you burning through the uh, stored creatine phosphate in your muscles that enables you to hang for 5 or 10 seconds, getting pumped is evidence that anaerobic glycolysis is now increasingly contributing to ATP production. And uh, you're creating lactate and hydrogen ions and other metabolic byproducts that disturb homeostasis. And your body, uh, of course, uh, enhances blood flow to try to clear that out and to spur on recovery. And you get pumped. So uh, this short duration repeater program, while I don't think it's the best for maximum strength, it will give you some maximum strength adaptations. It will also give you some strength endurance adaptations. So you could argue that for a rope climber, perhaps this is a better protocol. Certainly it might be a better protocol to use heading into a period of outdoor climbing where you uh, need to also have your Uh, anaerobic lactic energy system up to snuff as best as you can. And that's how I use it. My off-season training is more the uh, maximum weight type hangs, like the 753 protocol I just covered. But then as I'm getting ready to move into a performance period of climbing, I shift gears and do these short duration repeaters. So uh, here's how you do them. You know, these repeaters, this is really the original training protocol that was uh, distributed with fingerboards when they were invented in the late 1980s and became popular in the 1990s. And uh, the repeater protocol mimics this grip and relax, grip and relax repeating sequence that is just how we climb. So it is a very specific way of fingerboard training. Of course, since you're doing multiple uh, uh, hangs with only very short rest periods in between, you need to use Uh, much less weight than the previous two protocols, and perhaps no weight at all, or perhaps even you need to remove some weight from your body using a pulley system. Uh, This protocol has uh, recently been popularized by the Anderson brothers. They wrote the Rock Prodigy Training Manual, a really good book that you should read, and they've done some uh, hangboard research that has kind of shown uh, the improvements that climbers get from doing these repeaters, uh, not just uh, improvements in how much weight they can carry and the strength of their fingers, but um, their research documents that that has translated into improvements on the rock in terms of climbing performance. And so that's a great thing, you know, when you have a training program that has some uh, evidence behind it. Uh, Okay, so here's how you do it. Um, You're going to pick, uh, again, a few different grip positions, crimping, open-handing, pocket-type grips to train. And, uh, you know, if you're a limestone climber, then the pocket climbing or the pocket grip becomes very important to train. 
Or if you're more of a sandstone or granite climber, well, then you spend more time crimping or open-handing on edges. And, you know, those would be the grips you want to perhaps focus most of your training on. But each set on the hangboard is comprised of six hang rest intervals. Uh, The six hangs are seven seconds long with a three-second rest in between. And you need to be crisp on your timing. Use a timing app or your cell phone or have a a clock in view with a second hand or a digital uh, second hand in uh, view so that you can do precise seven-second hangs, three-second rests, and uh, keep going for a total of six hangs. So that will play out over just about one minute. And then after that one minute of uh, six hang and rest intervals, you will rest for a total of three minutes. And then you'll continue on and do another set. Now, again, since you're doing six hangs in one minute, you're going to get pumped. You know, that, again, is evidence that you're not only training the alactic maximum strength energy system, but you're also dipping into anaerobic glycolysis and training some strength endurance. And that's fine. Uh, You just need to know what you're training here. And uh, the three minutes of recovery will be significant. And then you'll get on and you'll do a second set and a third set. And you might do as many as six or eight or even 10 sets total. And this might sound like a lot of volume, but uh, this is more of an endurance training protocol and it's not as hard on the nervous system. So it's okay to build up to eight or 10 sets over a training cycle or a few training cycles. So you might do three sets of repeaters using three different grips or perhaps two sets of repeaters on five different grips. In terms of the amount of resistance added or removed for the effective repeater training, you want to determine the weight that makes this exercise difficult but doesn't precipitate failure uh, prematurely. You don't want to uh, fail to be able to complete your six-hang interval, uh, or you don't want to be falling off your seven-second hangs five or six seconds into the hang. So again, it really is important to keep uh, very detailed written records of the hold you used, the amount of weight you used, and then of course be um, very strict on following the protocol and also taking those three-minute rests between each set of hangs. I'm going to pause for a moment, call it a commercial break if you like, to tell you about my two newest training books, Training for Climbing 3rd Edition and The Rock Climber's Exercise Guide, which is, well, a very comprehensive exercise guide at that. The Rock Climber's Exercise Guide is all about physical training and developing an effective exercise program to improve your climbing. It presents more than 100 exercises that address every body part a climber needs to train. These exercises are beautifully illustrated with hundreds of photos, so I both show and tell you how to do each exercise correctly. If you're looking for an encyclopedia of exercises for climbers, then this is your book. My other recent book release is the third edition of Training for Climbing quite likely the best-selling performance climbing book on the planet, including the two previous editions and the numerous foreign translations, 
Training for Climbing has sold more than 150,000 copies worldwide. Training for Climbing is a kind of tome that reflects my 40 years as a climber and 30 years as a coach, researcher, and author. This book is ultra-comprehensive in that it provides deep instruction on everything from strength and power and endurance training to technique and mental training to nutrition and injury and recovery and more. The book delves into the science of training and climbing and therefore explains not just how and what to do, but also why you need to train in certain ways. You can learn more about both books at my website, trainingforclimbing.com. Click on the Books tab for more information on each of my books, and please do consider buying a copy from my website. Writing these books is part of how I make my living, and so your book purchase not only will help improve your climbing, but it will help support the continuation of this free podcast. Thank you. Okay, now the final part of this podcast, I want to um, touch on, first of all, what is good uh, hangboard training technique so that uh, hopefully you're not going to get yourself injured. And then second, talk a little bit about uh, programming. That is how to integrate this very specific finger strength training into your other uh, climbing and training activities and, uh, and how to do that over the course of your climbing season. Okay, so let's first talk about a good fingerboard training technique. I'll tell you, I love fingerboard training. I think every serious climber should own a fingerboard, but you will injure yourself if you use it too much, uh, if you use it uh, inappropriately, um, if you train with poor technique, or if you're not ready to even be using a hangboard. So consider yourself warned. And by the way, the same thing applies to campus boards. They're even more stressful and even harder to maintain proper technique on. So um, again, uh, I'll have to do another podcast and talk specifically about proper ways of campus training and avoiding injury in campus training. But um, hangboard training should really be a prerequisite to advancing onto a campus board. You need to be strong and be able to maintain good posture through your pulling muscles and your finger muscles before you can advance to a uh, campus board program. And so a, a hangboard is a good tool to kind of move in that direction to develop not only strong fingers, but also if you're hangboarding with good technique, you're also going to be training your rotator cuff and your shoulder muscles a little bit uh, as you're doing your hangs. So uh, in terms of proper technique, you want to think about maintaining a slight bend in your arms and some moderate um, level of tension through your shoulders and upper torso. Uh, think about like just the beginning of doing a pull-up. If you do the first 5% of the range of motion of a pull-up, uh, one of the first things that happens is your scapular stabilizers kick in, your rotator cuff muscles kick in, and that puts you in a nice protected position to hang with your fingers on small edges or with added weight to your body. Conversely, if you relax your shoulders 
and hang completely straight-armed and let your shoulders shrug upward toward your ears. That is the dangerous position. And many climbers have ended up stretching out their connective tissues and doing damage uh, to their tendons and rotator cuffs by training in that way. So uh, the most important thing is to maintain some tension through your shoulders. Think about just starting a pull-up. You're not going to bend your arms significantly, but just the beginning of that pull-up motion where you engage uh, the muscles through your shoulders. Your chest should press outward as your scapula kind of anchor in a uh, proper position for the hang. And if you do all those things, you're going to be in a pretty safe position to hang for 7 to 10 or 12 seconds. Now, if you're doing long hangs on a fingerboard, which I haven't talked about doing that because that's endurance training, but if you're doing longer hangs, it's tougher to hold that position. But for the maximum strength training protocols that I've just presented to you, which involve hangs of just 7 to at most 12 seconds, you should be able to hold that uh, position where you have that tension uh, through your shoulders and preserving a very safe, stable uh, position for these maximum hangs or near maximum intensity hangs. Next, on to programming. Uh, well, first of all, you can't hangboard train year-round. Don't try to do that. You know, any training program for any sport needs to have cycles to it. You need a period of training and stress, and then you need a period of rest and renewal. And uh, so if you're going to do a very specific block of finger flexor training, it's best done as part of an off-season training program. For most people, that's the winter season. Uh, if you live in the mid-latitudes where it snows a lot or it's just too cold to be outside, you know, that winter season is your off-season training. And so after taking a break after the end of your previous climbing season, you get into strength training type workouts. And obviously the finger flexors are one place you would want to target your strength training to take your uh, maximum strength to the next level for the next climbing season. So doing a four to eight week uh, winter season or off season block of hangboard training uh, is a good thing. And you want to basically limit yourself to two workouts per week, at least two fingerboard workouts per week. If you're following these protocols precisely, they are very hard on the nervous system. Um, you know, that's one of the main adaptations you're getting from these workouts is uh, developing neural drive, developing motor unit recruitment, how quick and how well your brain can coordinate the firing of fast twitch muscle fibers. There are other adaptations at work, but that's one of the primary ones. And you kind of, after doing one of these workouts, especially if you're doing weighted hangs, it's hard on the nervous system and it takes two, three, maybe even four days to recover from a significant weighted hangboard workout. And I should add, uh, how deep of a hole you dig yourself to recover from will be a function not only of the amount of weight you use, but also the number of sets that you do. So um, if you wanted to hangboard train three days a week, well, then I would say you should probably only do two sets total. That's it. But, uh, you know, if you're going to do most of these programs uh, and get the best results, I think you want to do three or four sets 
of uh, weighted fingerboard hangs or minimum edge hangs in a workout. And that is something that's going to take uh, two to three to even four days to recover from before you do your, your next workout, your next hangboard workout. So that would limit you to about two per week. A couple of things. If you uh, do your second workout of the week and you find, wow, I'm not fresh. I don't feel good. I can't finish these seven second or 10 second hangs the way I'm supposed to. That's a sign your nervous system hasn't recovered yet and you probably want to take the day off um, and just terminate your workout on the spot. Or if you want to do a little auto-regulation, if you are doing your warm-up and sense that you're not 100% or you do your first set of of hangs uh, and you are are failing to to meet the 7 or 10 second criteria on your hangs, then you might want to back off on your weight, or you really should back off on your weight and do kind of an easier hangboard workout uh, for that session and uh, therefore not dig an even deeper hole to recover from before your next workout. Uh, one of the worst things you can do is uh, just keep training through those uh, deficits, and uh, you know basically that'll lead you down a path of overtraining and really not getting the results you deserve given the efforts of your training. So you need to be aware, and that's where keeping good written records will uh, be good guidance for you. And for most people, if you're doing two sessions a week, you do that for four weeks, uh, you should be recovering and getting stronger pretty much workout to workout. You should see a little bit of progress. Um, After four weeks, or if you do a six or eight week block, and I think that's really the longest you should go, you need to take a few weeks off. At the very least, a one-week deload where you don't do any weighted training and just climb, or perhaps even take a full week of kind of active rest where you do other things. Now, during the off-season, you're doing hangboard training twice a week. Well, what about other training? Well, your other training would best be focused also on strength and power. So uh, you would be doing maybe two bouldering workouts a week, Perhaps if you're an advanced climber, you're also integrating some uh, campus training in, perhaps complex training where you uh, marry your hangboard training to your uh, campus training. That's a very effective training technique for advanced climbers, something that I've uh, detailed in my training for climbing book, but I don't want to get into complex training here. That would be another topic for a future podcast. But again, in the context of a winter season workout, uh, maybe you're doing a hangboard uh, workout on uh, Wednesday and Saturday. Uh, Maybe you're doing bouldering on those same days. Always do your bouldering first and your hangboarding second. Uh, And then maybe there's a a third or fourth day of the week where you're doing some lesser intensity bouldering or some roped climbing or even some high volume, low intensity arc style climbing. But your maximum workouts, your weighted hang workouts, are limited to twice per week. Now, during the on-season, you know, if you're climbing on weekends, if you're trying to performance climb during the week, uh, then it's tough to do significant hangboard training in a way that's going to get you gains. Because you're just going to end up, if you're doing two weighted hang workouts or two hard hangboard workouts per week, there's just no way you're going to be 100% fresh when you uh, visit the boulders or the crags for performance climbing. So really about the best you can do is one hangboard workout per week. Think of it as maintenance so that you don't lose um, 
the recruitment of the nervous system that you gained during your off-season training. Uh, if you're a weekend climber, as I am, well, then you'd probably want to do a hangboard workout on Tuesdays. You could do some bouldering, again, as your warm-up into the hangboard workout. On Wednesdays, do some type of endurance training. You could do some uh, threshold burns where you're climbing at your aerobic limit to develop aerobic capacity. You could do some 4x4 intervals, which is more of a lactic system, pumpy workout to train uh, lactic tolerance and that anaerobic energy system. Or if you're fatigued, you know, do a Wednesday workout that's just some uh, recovery climbing, arc-style climbing, in which you do relatively low-intensity climbing. It could be rope droughts. It could be traversing at a level that's easy enough that you never get pumped, but you get the blood circulating and you train the aerobic energy system without taxing or highly stressing the anaerobic energy system. Anyway, after training on Tuesday and Wednesday, you want to make Thursday and Friday relative rest days to try to get yourself back to 100% for your weekend climbing so that you can perform your best. If you try to sneak in a hangboard workout on a Thursday or some endurance climbing on a Friday, odds are you're not going to be fresh when it comes to your weekend climbing. So that gets down to, again, being smart at programming your workouts and uh, being smart with your recovery, your sleep, your nutrition, so that hopefully when it comes time to perform, whether it's a Saturday of hard sport climbing or trad climbing or bouldering, uh, you want to be fresh. You want to succeed and climb your best on the weekends. And so you need to be very smart about uh, programming. And by by the way, the, the podcast that I did back in January gets into some of these uh, concepts of programming and how to cut back on junk training and try to keep your uh, uh, exercise program high quality and not so excessive so that it uh, hinders you or handicaps you uh, when you head to the crags for your performance climbing. So do go back and revisit podcast number eight, released in January, for a review of exercise programming. Of course, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Training for Climbing podcast on iTunes. And if you're loving these podcasts, do please leave a review. Well, that does it for this edition of the Training for Climbing podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Until next time, be safe, be strong, and climb on.